Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are reading an article from November of 2019. We're, we're on this track of doing more recent articles, right? So we're starting to catch up to the present day. Uh, the article is written by Amelia Davenport, and it's called Organizing for Power, Stealing Fire from the Gods. Uh, fun article. Uh, so, uh, Kyle, what's, what's the gist of this? What's the, what's the pitch here? What's going on? Uh, so essentially, this article starts by um, re-examining Taylorism. Uh, and so for those of you who are not really familiar with it, because it's it's definitely like an older phenomenon, um, Taylorism was an attempt to sort of apply scientific principles of observation to the labor process um, and rationalize the labor process. It's very like typically associated with the introduction of the assembly line and the uh, enormous efficiency gains that were possible through using the assembly line. Um, And it's often uh, criticized as a group of techniques uh, that are used by capital uh, to de-skill, disempower, and discipline workers uh, towards the ends of like increasing profitability. Um, so this article starts off by doing a little bit of a closer reading of Taylor um, and seeing what did he really say. And the reason why uh, Davenport is is looking at this is because um, they I, I'm, I'm not sure what Amelia's pronouns are, but uh, um, uh, they're. Uh, they're trying to look at the techniques of organization, the tactics, the strategies that the left uses as a kind of like rule of thumb approach to what the left does as, as, as a rule of thumb approach to political change, to activism, um, which is to say like a kind of irrational or ad hoc uh, approach folklore organizing whatever yeah uh, yes so we've we've kind of you know developed these different strains of leftism and we have our sacred cows we have our 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 catechisms and so on um and uh you know davenport is sort of saying well what if we were to rationalize those um And what kind of falls out of that is um, a broader discussion about, I guess you could say, um, the the value or lack thereof of worker autonomy, of um, traditional practices of work, of disciplines of work. Um, sort of craft knowledge um, and how that can be compared to the principles of Taylorism, but also the principles of cybernetics and how that all figures into a discussion of the division of labor, the technical division of labor, which is to say the specific jobs that people do um, not in the sense that like I am a teacher, but in the sense that like 
I use PowerPoint to instruct, right? That's like part of the technical division of labor. Um, but also the social division of labor, which would just be more like I am a teacher. I come from this class of individuals within society. Um, and the argument that Davenport kind of ends up with is if we follow the ideas of Taylor and if we follow the ideas of cybernetics, then we need to break down these kinds of craft traditions towards the ends of like a more um, universal kind of knowing and a more universal kind of labor practice um, that will get rid of these kinds of like privileges or um, forms of technical domination that we see existing both within capitalist enterprises but also within previously existing socialism or uh, within, um, you know, government organizations today in the capitalist world, right? It's not necessarily just a thing where capitalist enterprises, we see it kind of across society. If we really want to get over that hump, then we're going to need to seriously rethink um, our understanding of workers' autonomy, social cooperation, and craft knowledge. Yep. Oh, nice, uh, nice short seven-minute episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can catch <laughs> us on fucking Twitter and all that kind of shit. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Fastest GIU ever. Speed run. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Firefox is telling me this is a 137-minute read, and we did seven-minute summary. So I, I think we've we've taken that the board. machine. <laughs> Goddamn. But. <laughs> Um, no, more seriously, let's. This will almost certainly be a two-parter, folks. So uh, strap your butts down and um, get ready for a long one. So yeah, I mean, uh, Davenport opens up with this this sort of stuff of like um, uh, the, the the author is zoning in on like this thing where like uh, we have this like received wisdom on the left. We have the, the, the as you said the catechisms and the the saints and that kind of stuff, um, which is often kind of like you know principles, but not really useful methodologies. Like often doesn't have traction on the world as such. But then, like, bourgeois systems theory and, like, you know, the sort of Nicholas Luhmann, this kind of stuff, um, which we need to get around to reading for the show. But uh, mm. it's characterized as being, like, you know, really solid empirical logical stuff, but lacking in the class analysis. So what we're kind of looking for here is a fusion of these two things. Like, what if we could steal fire from the gods and import this, like, you know, serious, scientific, professional fucking approach to analyzing things and um, maybe, you know, slay some sacred cows as well um, while we're at it? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, to be sort of like fair to the left, we can also see when we go back and like look at the history of systems theory that a lot of this stuff came from the left. Yeah, totally. originally, not all of it, but a lot of it did. And it's sort of in the in the process of the left becoming increasingly ossified, hidebound and sectarian um, and in the process of sort of like left scholars interested in systems theory trying to find a place to work and trying to avoid the FBI. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. You know, the, 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 the sort of continuity of systems theory and left thinking got split off, right? Um, where you have on the one hand, systems theory becomes very sanitized and depoliticized. Um, and on the other hand, you have uh, left organizing become becoming more and more uh, traditional 
and kind of just like a matter of um, repeating behaviors without a systematic understanding of what the consequences might be. Indeed. Um, so the, the author says they're going to take a, uh, you know, in the tradition of left contrarianism, let's take a look at Taylor and see if there's something uh, useful to excavate there. Um, so Kyle, what's this, this, this trick with like, what was, what was Taylor after with his whole scientific management thing? What was the goal of that? Right. So yeah, so Taylor's whole thing was this idea of scientific management um, which was opposed to existing uh, bourgeois approaches to management that had existed at his time. I believe he was working in like the very early 20th century. Like, isn't it like 1902, something like that? This stuff comes out. Yeah. Um, so the goals of Taylor's uh, principles of scientific management, uh, as he laid them out, were uh, maximum prosperity for the employer coupled with maximum prosperity for each employee transforming work so that workers would no longer be either overstrained through exertion or wasting their own time. And finally, improving general labor productivity so that the standard of living of the average person might grow through price reduction. So essentially what we're talking about here is a kind of um, a rising tide lifts all boats sort of view, right? And um, something uh, quite similar to a very early form of socialism, uh, which was called St. Simonianism, which was looking at the class struggle between capital and labor and as um, intellectuals trying to find a cool trick to resolve that contradiction, right? Uh, if, If we could just think well enough, this contradiction will be dissolved. That's kind of like the core of St. Simonian thinking. And it, it's very similar to what Taylor's doing here is like, yeah, let's, let's find a way to do a class compromise. That's going to benefit everyone instead of just uh, working to the benefit of one side or the other. And like, you know, it, it has to be said, like it, it's uh, within capitalism, this is kind of quite a naive sort of thing, right? Like it's, um, and Taylor was a bourgeois kind of asshole as well. Right. But um, what we're going to get through this whole piece is like the, the pitch that, it doesn't mean that this is necessarily, you know, like tainted by association. Some of these techniques, right? Because um, one of the one of the main th- one of the main sort of contrasts that's drawn here is the contrast between um, the kind of I guess pre scientific way of organizing the work process versus um, the scientific management thing, and the the where the pre scientific stuff is basically rule of thumb based, and it's kind of like. Um, you know, folklore-driven sort of ways of organizing the the work effort, um, where you know you have, you have people like you, you you can have workers who are like not getting very much done, but they're also destroying their bodies doing it. You know, um, yes, like their 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 limbs are being ripped apart, like by by the kind of just idiotic fucking like ineffective way they're lifting things or whatever and then the pitch for the scientific thing is like hey look you'll get more done and yes the capitalists will win because of that but also you won't be fucking dead by the time you're 26 you know um it you'll you'll be you won't be exhausted by the end of the day that sort of stuff right and there's like a contrast here of like the rule of thumb methods did have some kind of autonomy to them or there's a there's a sort of romantic autonomy there but, you know, there's, there really is something to be said for this kind of, like, thing of, like, doing science on yourselves. Obviously, we would like to de- decouple that from the capitalist kind of profit imperative stuff. And that, that means, like, the, the techniques can still be useful uh, in, a, in a socialist society where, you know what, like, getting shit done pretty quickly so you can go home and rest, you know, 
probably a good thing in socialism, right? Like to to reduce the workday, you know? Yeah, we, I mean, we can we can definitely see um, the Taylor's perspective being opposed to something like the arts and crafts movement or um, something like uh, like Heidegger, yeah, uh, Heidegger's politics, right? Like the the idea of the importance of the uh, the Zuhanden, right? The like the the two hand, right? Like it, like you know that that sort of like immediacy with the labor process being a kind of like core authentic experience right of of what it is to be human um taylor is very skeptical of that because taylor is looking at all these rules of thumb that uh individual workers or small groups of workers have for like how to best do some kind of practice um and uh is kind of saying like well first of all there's no real way to compare these, right, uh, for the workers. They're not interested in comparing the ones to see which is best. And furthermore, because they're so engaged in the labor process, they don't have the time or energy to actually evaluate that as an observer, right? And that observer's perspective is something that Heidegger was very skeptical of, but Taylor sees as 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 quite... Uh, quite valuable to creating a kind of positive feedback loop of, of examination, consideration, refinement, and then implementation, right? Yeah, totally. Um, so the term that he uses, or the term that's used for the pre-scientific thing is management by initiative and incentive, where, how does this break down? So that the they have the, the workers have their handicraft knowledge, which the managers don't, and so they're the workers are working on their own initiative um, and their own knowledge, right? And then the managers can only use positive incentives like raises and promotions, or like negative incentives like firing, in order to to regulate that process. Um, and this right. is this is a this is an impoverished regulator, right? Like this is this this ends up being a pretty ineffective way to do things. Um, yeah, so there's um, uh, the so the things that the, the the managers can do are yeah provide raises and promotions, um, fire people as a negative incentive, and then use personal charisma to kind of um, raise morale among the workers, right? So like if you got if you got a li- likable boss, then you might be a little bit more invested in your work, right? That's that's the kind of thing that's going on. So it's interesting there that you've got, on the one hand, you have this like, yeah, romantic handicraft autonomy sort of notion coupled to brute domination, right? Like uh, the, like what, what beer would really frown on as being like, this is a really shitty way of, of regulating the work process, right? Like you've got this, this very unstable loop between these two things. Um, and the, yes. the, the managers only have these extremely crude tools of like very violent algodonic signals to to adjust the process at all Um, that's right that's right um and so yeah so the 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 problem is that the the interaction is neither fine-grained enough nor uh responsive enough nor tightly coupled enough right it's it's um you know it's very much that picture of the manager uh sitting up in the office above the workspace uh looking down at the work floor (laughs) the glare maybe 
Yeah, but then, you know, just kind of being completely removed from the labor process. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's seen as, uh, by Taylor as just like, well, this is a huge problem. <laughs> uh, I think it should also be pointed out as well that, like, even though we have this kind of, uh, again, romantic, autonomous, semi-autonomous kind of handicraft knowledge, the, the workers aren't actually self-managing. Like they're they're basically they're not free. Like they they are under the glare of uh, of management, um, and a, yeah. a, a rather baleful glare at that. Because the the, the if, if fucking something up isn't like oh you know we should adjust the process and and tune up how these things go. No, the fucking it up is you get fired. Um, it's um, so in, on one hand it seems quite romantic. It's like and this is this is a tradition in socialist thought as well of like oh we should we should go back to this like craft craft knowledge autonomy stuff. But you know, I don't know. In practice, I mean, like it wasn't that fucking great either. Like this, this wasn't exactly a golden age of uh, of worker worker self management, was it? You know. Yeah, and I've I've definitely worked in workplaces where management by initiative and incentive was more or less the norm. Um, so, for example, working as an adjunct um, in Japan, um, I yeah, I was I was basically just like hired to teach this many, um, hours or this many courses. Um, and the management was entirely hands off. It was just an evaluation at the end. Like, did you provide the course? And there was really not, not much interaction. So on the one hand, like that does provide a kind of, um, ideal of autonomy because it's like, well, I'm making my own courses. I'm, uh, I'm able to set like my own goals for the most part. Um, I'm able to manage my own students without interference from, uh, from uh, management on that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of autonomy, but also like, you know, you know there's a lot of sort of like floundering around yeah, um, yeah. trying to get at techniques that work and, and doing a lot of really, um, kind of self-destructive behaviors just because you don't know any better right like uh like oh I'll, I'll try to teach it i'll try to grade papers this way and then i'll try to grade it another way and you don't really have a very good way to evaluate which is better um and you you kind of work yourself to the bone um because you're just always trying to figure out something that works um and you're kind of off on your own doing your own thing um, and and so I, I, I definitely understand what uh, Taylor is getting at here, um, because in those cases where like I've been in workplaces where I'm not being micromanaged, but there is more of a collaborative and social atmosphere and like I'm being taught best practices, which I may or may not accept but at least I'm being exposed to them. Um, I found that to be, you know, it's not, it's still a capitalist workplace, right? But there is like, when you, when you do make it, when you do learn one of these like effective techniques and integrate it into your teaching or your work, there is a kind of satisfaction to that and a kind of relief to just be like, okay, well, finally, I'm not just doing everything on my own. And you're, you're better off for us, you know? You just you're just better. Yeah, I'm not just groping around in the dark. You yeah. Know? Um, um, 
one of the concrete sort of examples that's brought up in the article from from Taylor's time to like give give an illustration of how this this process worked is um, his improvement of like the handling of pig iron. Uh, so basically, loading big trailers or trains full of iron or whatever the fuck that stuff is, um, and it's done by hand. You know, it's it's proper manual labor. And I should clarify as well, like just for the listeners who are maybe not quite caught up with us, we're not standing for Taylor, right? Like we're just like, this, no. <laughs> this whole a good chunk of this article is kind of a a really good faith devil's advocate sort of thing of like what if we just looked at this and tried to take a lesson from it. Um, we're not standing for capitalist workplaces that, you know, because like it, it, it still sucks even though, even if the work process has improved a bit, a bit all that kind of stuff aside. Um, the pig iron example is really interesting because, um, you know, looking at the process, folks weren't getting very much done. They were loading, you know, X quantity of iron on, like they were loading whatever three trailers worth a day, um, which is pretty damn low. Uh, and then, but they were also fucking exhausted, like their arms were falling off and their backs were being destroyed. And then Taylor comes along, looks at it, and like looks at, okay, what's going on here? Well, people are lifting things. And the important stuff with lifting is weight and duration of the lift. So can we look at those and break them down scientifically? Can we build curves of like weight versus time and all this kind of stuff? Can we find the optimal sort of points? Can we find the maximums and minimums? And it turns out, yeah, there is a maximum amount of weight you can carry and a maximum duration per day that you can carry those kinds of weights, after which it's just over. And the, 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 the worker is exhausted. Also, they're damaged, you know, physically fucking damaged, and they just have to sit it out. So he then goes, well, what if we rejig the work process to do like, I don't know, a bucket chain or whatever, where people are lifting lighter weights for shorter durations, they can get 30 times as much stuff done and not be exhausted. And also their arms aren't falling off now. So like, it's, a, it's an example of that thing where, you know, T Taylor's attempt at like a win-win scenario does pay off, like kind of legitimately in a lot of these cases where like, hey guys, you're, you're honest to God better off doing it the scientific way. Your old folklore-based fucking like romantic notions of, of doing it your own way, they're going to fucking kill you. Like you're, there's, there's a reason why most of you guys go, go out of here with broken backs by the time you're 30. Um, maybe try being smart for once yeah. instead, you know? Um, so that's, that's something really to grapple with there that like, you know, that's, it, it, it's, it's, you're, you're better off doing, doing science on like, and you know, for clarity then, like, like the, 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 the limit of Taylor's thing is that like, he fully believes that the only way this can work is if management do the science and labor is basically excluded from that scientific process. The thing that's being proposed here is what if we stole fire from the gods and we did this ourselves? We do science in ourselves, uh, both in the now as we are developing uh, the, the coming revolution and also afterwards. In the socialist society, aren't we going to need scientific ways of working that get a lot of shit done in a very short space of time and don't kill us while we're doing it? That's a pretty, you right. know, that's a good pitch. I think it's really worth taking seriously. Yes. And I mean, it, it does have to be say, said that the the other sort of limit to this is that um, it is a win-win in many cases. But of course, the bosses are winning more than the oh, workers. Yeah, yeah. It's intensification, right? like it, certainly. Right? It, it, it's, it's typically going to mean an, an improvement in the work process uh, in terms of strain and so on. And it's also typically going to mean uh, somewhat higher wages. But of course, the bulk of the gain is going to go to the profitability of the enterprise that goes to the owners, 
because this is a capitalist enterprise. Because, like, I mean, even, even the way the numbers work out here or whatever, I'm, I'm not going to look it up, up in the article, but, like, it's, like, 30 times as many trains loaded, and then the, the, the workers get, a, like, a 60% bonus. It's like, meh. Those numbers don't quite yeah. work out, you know what I mean? Yeah, but exactly. The trick, then, is that, like, in, in our uh, socialist utopia, that... That that productivity gain could be used not for intensification, but for work reduction. That, like, you get your shit done, like, in two hours and you go home and just, I don't know, play with your kids, drink, do whatever the fuck you want. Um, there's, there, there is still, like, it, it, treating it in this kind of instrumental way as, has its kind of problems, right? But there's the kernel of something very useful to the socialist project there of, like... Hey, you know, maybe maybe the work process could eventually disappear, like in in that kind of like fragment on machines kind of way, right? It would just get so so automated and so scientificized that it would it would disappear from view, right? Yes, yes, um, and 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 the justification for Taylor is that like it's okay that the gains are so lopsided on the side of management because there is a natural rightness to the social division of labor. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. He's a total asshole. <laughs> these manual workers are doing manual work because that's all they're good for. Uh-huh, yeah. He was like a fucking Darwinist or something. He was like um, some sort of eugenics-adjacent sort of asshole, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just to make it clear, like, why Taylor thought that was okay wasn't necessarily because he was, like, a huge stand for capital or anything like that. It was more because you just kind of had this like, yeah, the social division of labor is fixed. So what? how can we make the best of it kind of situation? So what we're saying there is that like if, if Taylor by accident was born in Russia instead, he would have ended up doing the same shit. Like it would just like the the ideological commitment isn't really there. It's just like, no, these these people are swine. They should be worked, uh, worked hard and, and extracted from. Yeah, which was totally the attitude of like many like like the majority of that sort of like bolshevik middle layer of of of, of managers right um they 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 had a very very low opinion of your average worker and the, and the idea of sort of like intense hierarchy of the social division of labor was was like pretty much fully endorsed uh in the USSR so um you know taylor taylor's ideas would have been at home there. Of course, they didn't actually work very well when they were implemented mm. uh, in the USSR. <laughs> uh, a bunch of shit didn't work very well. In, as yeah, it's like, you know, they, they, there's that story of like the Soviets getting Fiat to build a factory for them and then the factory requiring like four times as much labor as it did in Italy, um, even though it's exactly the same factory just because of like the weirdness of the Soviet state, right? <laughs> there's a for the listeners. There's a recent Swampside episode about that. I think it's the title is something like a, a Clock Without a Spring. Um, yeah, go listen to it. It's great. Um, this brings us on to the next section: uh, initiative and incentive in leftist organizing. Which is, I just, I love these kind of like just scathing indictments. Um, so we have, we have a we have a quote here: the initiative and incentive model of management is the standard method of leftist groups. Organizers, through their personal charisma and promise of winning immediate gains, incentivize people to use their initiative towards their campaigns. 
Group members receive general tasks and an expectation to complete them, either by themselves or with a few other people. It doesn't matter whether it's the top-down orders of the leadership or democratic vo uh, vote by the group. Activists are tacitly encouraged to take on an unsustainable load, leading to burnout. Motivating activists in leftist organizations is a mixture of generating enthusiasm through charismatic interventions by leaders whether they consider themselves leaders or not, or through peer pressure and guilt, which organizers leverage to build commitment. The routine cancellation of leftists by activists and policing of cultural consumption are examples of mechanisms for disciplining activists to the will of organizers. Ooh. <laughs> Just scorched. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, this is the really interesting turn that this, this article takes, right? It's because it's not just saying oh, what if we applied Taylorism to socialist labor? It's saying, what if we applied Taylorism to today's leftist organizing, right? And it, it's kind of like that thing where the analysis is being applied to the people who are usually doing the analyzing, right? Um, it very it reminds me a lot of, uh, of Bourdieu's uh, uh, sort of, you know, thing where he he turns Marxist or sort of Marxian cultural critique back on the university intelligentsia. <laughs> right. And that that there's an episode of um the partially examined life uh where they look at Bourdieu and they're sort of like awkward squirming as they have to do some really uncomfortable introspection um is is truly priceless um and and i and i really appreciate this kind of similar move we see here of like well yeah but you know isn't organizing and isn't activism a kind of labor too and why do you think it's not mm -hmm. like where's that coming from huh <laughs> this, this resonates so strongly with a lot of the stuff we've been saying all along right like the the need to take organizing an organization and the project of building socialism to take that fucking seriously yeah i i, I love i love this fucking i love this essay i love this 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 passage um uh the, the author then moves on towards the more like um a little bit more concrete kind of recommendations right for this um kind of just basically like i think it boils down to clearing out all these untested rules of thumb all this like folklore fucking nonsense this the received wisdom and all that kind of shit and doing science in ourselves instead and yes and importantly this question applies whether you are a member of a vanguardist group right or you're a member of some kind of like you know standard social democratic party or you're the member of some kind of anarchist organization um you know, nobody is immune to this kind of question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, because it's 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 there's so much of this stuff, right? Of like, oh, it's it's always it's trot selling newspapers, it's anarchists doing community gardens or whatever, and it's like across the board, it's all this going through the motions shit of like, why why do we do any of this kind of stuff? Literally out of fucking habit, because or because there's no alternatives, and it's, why are there no alternatives? We refuse to take the alternatives seriously. You know, um, just yeah. Well, uh, you know, like Davenport gives like a sort of uh, equation for what these rules of thumb usually look like, right? So uh, there's the 
Vanguard Party plus democratic centralism or mass line plus newspaper sales plus electoralism plus entryism plus communist saint worship and so on versus anarchism plus decentralization plus quote unquote grassroots organizing uh, plus propaganda of the deed plus syndicalism plus direct service plus permaculture. Um, I, I love how how the the final one in both of those lists is the punchiest. <laughs> That's like, wonderful. Oh, and gardening, of course. Yeah. You, gotta, you gotta have that gardening in there no matter what. Um so uh so yeah, so like you know, these are sort of like clusters of tradition uh that have coalesced over time and depending on which label you want to apply to yourself of being a quote-unquote communist or quote-unquote anarchist, you're probably going to participate in these behaviors because that's what those organizations do and that's what it means to have that identity. Um, But maybe we don't need to just inherit tradition wholesale. I mean, you would hope so given that we're communists and that's not really supposed to be our thing, right? <laughs> uh-huh. What's what's that fucking the, the Marx bit about like oh the, the the tradition of dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living? And it's like yeah, we've yeah. we've gotten ourselves to the fucking point where that that's just that's true of us, right? Like it's just our our own fucking traditions are, are weighing us down and all this kind of stuff. It's 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 sickening really. Um when you think through it, because the the um, the project is so serious, the stakes are so fucking high, um, and you know, kind of would really, I'm with the author here of just like, please take this shit seriously, like, and be fucking professionals about it. Not in the sense, not in the sense of like the vanguardist, like professional revolutionary thing, but just like professionalism, as in answer a fucking email when it comes in, or show up to things, or tell people things, or write shit down or use a calendar, any of that kind of stuff, like just nuts and bolts kind of professionalism of like doing the revolutionary process. Um, Well, and I think there's like, you know, kind of something beyond that too, which is to say like you, um, ah, shit, I've lost my point. Oh, well, (laughs) uh, uh, um, yeah, you're talking about professionalism, but not in the van, like like in the vanguardist kind of professional revolutionary sense. But instead, the the kind of professionalism that, like, you know, because I mean, like, I, I come out of software development, right? And like, um, there's a lot of just basic nuts and bolts, like organizing of our work and organizing of collaboration, which is like immediately applicable to organization of 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 social movements, right? Um, but it's either not known or it's written off as being like a fucking bourgeois spook. It's like, oh, you're using a calendar to coordinate your shit? Oh, pff, <laughs> you know, get out of here, fucking Rockefeller or whatever. Um, and yeah, it's just like, you know, just that kind of behavioral professionalism. Like the, the author, like the, this, this article's long, right? There's a lot of stuff here and it's, it's really worth reading. Um, there's a couple of examples through here of like stuff like accountability and like responsibility and you know, um, kind of rating and ranking each other as like, in terms of like soundness, like can, can, can these people be trusted? Um, are, is this person capable of carrying out this, um, this work? If not, they should be trained to, 
and they should be trusted to do mm-hmm. it with the appropriate procedures of like, you know, because like nobody's born knowing this stuff. Um, but it should be part of the movement yes. to teach ourselves and teach each other how to be responsible for ourselves and for each other. Uh, you know, and that that's the kind of professionalism I'm talking about there of like, um, and even like it, the way the author frames the stuff is always in terms of, it's, it's not like, you know, individual personal discipline of just like wearing the hair shirt or being getting whipped or whatever. Yeah, th- that's exactly right. It's not a matter of the professional being that kind of like infinitely self-sacrificing person of like, which like, you know, sort of like Lenin is the ideal, right? Where like he worked himself to death for the revolution. Which is unprofessional, in fact, you know, like it's, um, it's unsustainable and it's not real. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and, and I think like there, there is a certain amount of, 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 there's a certain degree to which I'm, I am cautious about using the term professionalism for reasons we're going to get into later in this essay with the discussion about like, you know, there, there's a real sort of attempt here to say we don't want to make this about developing a set of skills for a profession. As you were saying, we want to if we come out with an if we come up with an innovation for organizing we shouldn't use that as a special advantage against other workers or against other activists we should bring everybody up to that level of competency and that's kind of where i see it being a little bit different from professionalism which is about establishing professions like typically it's about establishing professions against the mass of workers, right? Saying like, yeah, but I'm different because of X, Y, Z. So I'm just, I just want to like, you know, make clear that we're not saying we need a professional cadre of activists who are going to be like so much better than your average worker. It's more about disseminating whatever effective methods or perspectives exist to everyone out there who can make use of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a much better way of putting it. Is, is there a better term than professionalism for what I'm getting at there? Or maybe there isn't. I don't know. I don't know if there's something that Davenport uses here. Um, it may come up in the discussion. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think it is, um, you know, often there's the resort to saying, like, it is a scientific approach. Right. Or it is a systemic approach um, uh, instead of saying, you know, it is a it, it is a professional approach. But obviously, you know, the, we kind of stumble over the language here because um, we're dealing with a very deeply ingrained uh, like contradiction or break in society. Right. That like is. And that that break, as this article will identify, the default line is technique, right? So when we're talking about coming up with better techniques, it's not surprising that we kind of fall into that idea of professionalism because that's kind of what makes professionals have social power is having better yeah, techniques, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're explicitly talking here about disseminating those techniques and liquefying the professional 
class or like like breaking down that distinction so that it's uh it's not a thing that's hoarded um amongst a, a particular cadre it it it's also like something that the article will get into is like this is like a trap that lenin fell into right because lenin was kind of aiming for what we're talking about but the sort of prejudices of the professional managerial class led him towards reproducing that kind of technical domination. So it, it, it's, you know, especially for people like ourselves who have technical knowledge and, and, and that, that gives us a little bit of a premium in terms of our labor value. Um, we really have to do a lot of self-examination to avoid falling into that trap. Because that's what we've been brought up with for our entire lives. It's almost as if we've we've always lived in capitalism, right? And it's it's yeah, exactly. sunk into the cores, yeah. you know. It's like uh, we're we, yeah, but it's it's a thing we absolutely have to uh, constitute ourselves against, right? We have to be on on watch for that in um, in our own behaviors and in our, our language. We need to, need to do the whole culture thing and invent new language for this. Um, we we then come on to some sort of really interesting. Uh, Sections about like training and this sort of thing, and like kind of central to Taylor's um, whole shtick is the notion that people can can improve, like they can be taught things and become better at things, and like this also ties up with the notion of like aptitude being measurable and like or aptitude for a given task being a measurable thing, which also means that like if you identify that you know, some one worker is really good at it and another worker isn't so much. That's a, that's a thing to like, they sh- the, the second person should be trained to become better, right? Like it, it, it really should be a rising tide lifts all boats sort of thing and people should be improved and people can be improved is, is really central to this, um, central to this notion, right? Yes. And this is, this is a point where, um, Taylor's recommendations and the sort of pop culture understanding of Taylorism are really divergent, right? Because the image of Taylorism we have is, you know, modern times, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The Chaplin movie, right? Yeah, it's the individual being subordinated to the machine Mm -hmm. in the way that Marx describes, right? Um, And the machine is very insensitive to the variety of individual workers. So it's like there, there is a manner in which to do this task and everyone should be able to perform it exactly the same way. And if you don't, you're just going to be destroyed. Right. Um, whereas Taylor was very much more about understanding where people's level of aptitude was trying to increase that, but also not forcing the matter or creating a one-size-fits-all solution, um, which is really, really different from what we usually mean when we say it's, Taylorism. It's it's part of this. It's the specialization of labor, right? That like it, you know, it is fine and good, and in fact desirable to to specialize and to be like, oh, look, like Alice really likes, I don't know, banging this thing with a wrench or whatever, um, turning this valve. And Joe likes this other thing. Well, fine, let them fucking do it. Like, just and let them get really good at doing those things. Um, and, like, consult with them. as like, hey, what, what do you actually want to do? What do you want to get good at? Um, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's great. And that, that applies to the, the left organizing stuff as well, of, like, if, if folks... Um, 
if folks are struggling to organize events, like fucking train them, like, you know, get people who know what to, what to do to like teach them how to do stuff for, for Davenport. This also ties in with like the kind of, um, this, uh, what's the term she uses, the, the, the comradely cooperation, right. And the, like the, the cooperative commonwealth yeah. and that sort of thing of like, if you're running a, a movement or if you're, you're involved in a movement and say a person is like kind of constantly missing meetings because of parental commitments, that's a clear indicator that you as an organization must provide childcare on site with your meetings. Like that's, it, this always has to be a thing of like lifting people up, not like, oh, they're, they're a flake. They need to get, they get chucked, you know? Yeah. Which is, you know, like <laughs> a huge challenge for organizing um, because yeah, you're going to have people who come from very different material means and very different educational backgrounds. And like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a serious challenge because it's very easy to get frustrated. I think the, the thing about the, the educational backgrounds thing ties in with a, a thing I was trying to get to earlier, but I think it didn't really, didn't really land. It was that like, there's stuff that like for either, you know, white collar workers, your software developers, or kind of, you know, anyone in that kind of kind of realm, there's kind of nuts and bolts organizational techniques and just like personal productivity techniques that are just normal, right? Like completely almost unremarkable, mm. right? Like just, you know, writing shit down and like making checklists and checking them off. And like, you can't assume that everyone's already going to know that. And the, the, the way to solve that is to teach them it, you know, like t teach people how to use, use things, te teach them how to like keep a calendar properly and that sort of stuff. That's the kind of thing Davenport's getting at here is that there should be, we should be building not, not like an elite cadre of professionals who know what to do, but building this like cooperative commonwealth of um, just then spreading this knowledge and the skills as far and wide as possible. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's really something that I had to do a lot of sort of like self-reflection and deprogramming to get over as a teacher, because the sort of values that were installed in me as a student were like kind of, you know, real emphasis on the value of student autonomy, um, which means like in practice kind of saying if you're if you don't have what it takes to be an autonomous learner and to think your way around sort of open-ended, vague problems, you're kind of a hopeless case, right? And like, we'll, we'll give you like, you know, exercises to work through to try to develop those skills. But if you can't hack it, then you're screwed. that's your fault yeah. because you're an autonomous learner, mm -hmm. right? Extremely neolib ideology there, right? That like you're just this completely atomized individual who can't be can't be helped, right? You either got yes. it or you don't, kid. Not gonna fit, you know. It it really is, but it like it's very common in the academic left, I would say, and I think that's for reasons that we will like sort of examine as we get further into this essay, um, and sort of overcoming those prejudices as a teacher was, was a very difficult process um, because it it's, you know, you go through a lot of education and some values get very deeply ingrained into you. Um, so kind of coming around to this point of view, um, I think is, is, is really valuable, but it, 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 it can be quite a challenge and uh, that, you know, that that's okay. 
it's our right to fall down. But, you know, like taking this kind of approach, you're going to hurt the least amount of people you can uh, and, and probably improve the lives of the most people you can. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a really there's an interesting kind of like um, concrete example here that I think resonates with a lot of what you said um, that like where the author is pointing to um, Taylor's like emphasis of like object lessons, like really practical lessons, basically like the, you don't just um, yammer theory at people. You like use illustrations and practical illustrations for them, um, which is great. And it's, it's something that resonates with Dewey's theory of education. But then this stuff gets picked up and kind of ran with in the wrong way as like some educators believing that, oh, well, like if practical example driven stuff is the way to go, then like, fully autonomous like self-directed examples are the way to go like as in you just let let the kids let let the let them loose in the like sandbox and let them figure it out themselves which i think is the bad yes. kind of autonomy that you were talking about right that like yeah th- no that's that's a hundred percent what i was uh brought up with as a student you know teacher saying um you know, I'm not going to give you a subject for your essay. You need to come up with that for yourself because you need to be an autonomous scholar. Which is a, a kind of brutal Darwinian kind of like way of weeding out the the weak, you know. <laughs> um. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like it, it's kind of it's often couched in a sense of like this is a university. We're not like the rat race, the corporate environment where you are given deliverables and clear criteria because we're training you to think critically. And what that means is you need to be able to take a vague parameter and produce something as a result of that using really open-ended thinking. And, you know, Dewey's point was sort of like, no, that's wrong because (laughs) there needs to be um, sort of examples used to work your way up to that structure and also support from someone who actually knows what they're doing to kind of like give you the nudge you need in the right direction um, as opposed to the kind of like sink or swim, figure it out uh, uh, approach. Um, So, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like Taylor or sort of Dewey's ideas sort of split in two directions, right? Is like the one way is the kind of fully open-ended, just like do your own thing, man, kind of approach uh, versus the the other approach that falls out of, of Deweyism, which is like, you know, um, object lessons with no broader theoretical concept, context, right? It's just like, oh, you know, like the way that uh, mathematics is, is usually taught, right? Like, oh, uh, like, yeah, I'm going to learn how to calculate a hypotenuse, Um and I like, how do I use that? I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> cool triangle, though. I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I sure know how the, the Pythagorean theorem works. Yep. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. This, this is why I like c- combined with my ADHD. This is why I've been so terrible at math and a lot of these kind of things. Cause the, 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 the teaching methods, like looking back on them, absolutely fucking sucked. <laughs> you know, it was like a lot of this kind of stuff is so recognizable from my own education. Um, yeah. And it, it's like the, the difficult thing about, you know, being a teacher is you're repeating a lot of the same patterns you recognized were bullshit when you were a student, but you, you can't 
do anything else. <laughs> you live long enough to become the, the, the bad institution guy, right? is pushing you in that direction, and you're like, ah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, there's one. There's one sort of uh, interesting little tidbit at the end of this section before we get on to the next one uh, about like kind of. Um, the whole like functional foreman sort of thing, like the kind of supervision of the work process. Uh, that's a part of Taylorism. Uh, Davenport's point is that, yeah, that, that can just be applied to self-management. You just have rotating responsibilities. Um, rotate whoever's the supervisor every, every day in, in communism. Well, it, it, it's um, so the idea of functional supervision is to take the idea of the foreman, which is, you know, just like basically the NCO, the sergeant of labor. Right. Uh, the person who, who who manages the the line workers um, um, and break up the tasks of the foreman functionally, according to different roles among a number of different managers. Now, having seven bosses sounds like hell, um, but this isn't really that it's more about, um, you know, one person is there to just observe observe the labor process and make notes about it to share, right? Uh, and another person is in charge of mediating conflicts or whatever, right? Like these different roles that a foreman would provide. Um, and what Davenport is saying is like, for Taylor, splitting it up into those seven people, each of those had to be a trained white collar worker because – they're the only ones with the brain power to actually do this stuff. And also almost certainly a white worker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No doubt. <laughs> um, uh, and, and Davenport's saying, well, actually, if you think about this, like the fact that these are divided up functionally means that the functional roles can be rotated among the workers for self-management. So it's not just having like one manager uh, rotating. It's It's like each of these separate functional management roles can be continuously rotated to build up a, a general skill set. Which gets us like wonderfully in the direction of the kind of VSM stuff, right? Like the kind of, um, you can have these like supervisory and management functions and these like regulatory functions just completely deterritorialized off of the body of particular people. And there are now collective yes. functions that are performed rather than being like, Oh, I'm 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 the king. I'm the, I'm the little fucking general guy or whatever. Because like the, 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 that that sort of old school way of doing it, right? With like the the general or whatever, or the the sort of like single supervisor. It's a kind of like homunculus theory of of coordination, where you know the, the the work the work process needs to be coordinated, and the answer is to put a little man at the nexus of coordination. And what what we're getting through through Taylor and then through Davenport is and and the VSM stuff is to just blow that shit wide open and like have it not be located on the body of a person at all. Have these like coordination functions be a shared responsibility uh, in the workforce, ultimately, like in 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 our ideal socialist workplace. Yeah. And that's getting at breaking up the social division of labor, right? Um, it, it, the, the sort of misplaced concreteness of, you know, well, this person is this kind of role. So that means that they're essentially this kind of person, right? Like that kind of like, you know, platonic idea of like, well, there's the gold people and the gold people have gold people traits. Um, that, 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 that's, that's not what we're aiming at here. Um, yeah, 
Definitely. So what's this, uh, this, this kind of last section for this episode, I think, is going to be this uni- unified science bit. So, uh, so kind of what's all this about? So uh, if, if we take this point of view that we need to break down the social division of labor, right? right? We need to, um, say, have these rotating roles. Um, and if we blow that out from just like the context of an individual workplace into like the broader social division of labor, um, then it becomes clear that like what we really need is a um, general mastery of technical knowledge because um, what's that? what that is going to do is it's going to prevent the creation of a class that dominates through um, its monopolization. So this is Davenport's words, the monopolization of the technical knowledge to direct production and transmute the inputs of production, including the expended life force of workers into wealth. So that monopolization of technical knowledge um, is a major obstacle to actually like getting to a functional socialism or getting to communism. Right. Um, uh, and so what we can do in order to make that happen is create this general mastery or create what, you know, is often called like a kind of like a unified science. Um, so there, there's a history to these sorts of ideas, right? Um, so, you know, one thing that Davenport says is that this whole idea really problematizes Marx's focus on the ownership of the means of production, right? So you, you seize the means of production, seize the means, you're going to, that's the rev. Owning the tools. You got that done, yeah. you're, you're good, you're golden, right? Um, that's, that's kind of a very simplistic look at Marx. But, it, it, you know, Marx's focus on that was real, obviously. Um, and that's kind of um, a product of the time he was working in because technical knowledge in Marx's time in the workplace was mostly um, manifest in the form of tools, right? Very concrete means of production that you use it. Like those, those machines appeared as manifestations of capitalist power on the work floor. Right. And, and simultaneously you didn't have any kind of professional management Right. Because management was the this uh, management by uh, incentive and uh, what was the earth in ma- initiative and incentive management by initiative incentive was the norm. Uh, owners typically had no direct relate or sorry, they they uh, yeah, they didn't have any pr- kind of professional managerial techniques. They didn't have these massive management bureaucracies that exist today. And science was also completely disorganized or, or very lightly organized. It was, it was you know, this is the, the age of the gentleman scientist, right? Uh, it's just kind of like rich, rich dudes doing science as a hobby. Um, and so when you look at like those sorts of characteristics and how they differ from what happened in the 20th century, you can understand why Marx's focus was on the ownership of the means of production because – they were tools. You could own them. And if you did own them, you pretty much own the effective power of technique and science in society. Um, but Davenport's saying, look, you know, that's that focus is not invalid, right? Like it's still important to own the means of production, but it's not sufficient, right? Um, so um, capital monopolizes technical knowledge 
Um, and this means that worker ownership is kind of analogous to what you might call like a formal democracy, right? Like, yes, you know, if I work at a worker owned enterprise, um, I get a vote in the direction of things, but really I don't have power over the enterprise because if I'm, if, if I'm not a manager, if I'm not an engineer, um, then I don't have the technical knowledge to direct production. And, and that gives, that gives those people a kind of veto power over the direction of the enterprise because they can just withhold their labor and then you're screwed. Right. Um, uh, furthermore, uh, the, the law of value. So the, the way in which, uh, market interactions, uh, shape decision-making of firms and individuals, uh, sort of market pressures, um, those, uh, are important and Marx's focus on that was important. The sort of value form stuff is important. Uh, but if you look at institutions that are largely insulated from the market, like, you know, say the Pentagon, which has like, it has its suppliers and there's this tiny set of suppliers and uh, it just gets a, just shovel loads of money from the American government. You still see this technical monopolization and domination happening. Uh, in those organizations, which suggests that the law of value isn't definitive in structuring domination. Yeah. Um, and Davenport kind of make it, it, it she uses the term uh, like dependency, right? Like she's drawing the analogy with feudalism here that um, capitalism is still preserving these like dependency relations of like, you are an impoverished serf who doesn't know how to run shit, and I am the person who knows how to run things. Um, that's still preserved, and yeah, it's, it's preserved even in the absence of like real kind of commodity wage labor conditions, like in in civil and military bureaucracies. Um, that dependency thing is still there. I mean, I, I, yeah, I work, I've worked in like the civil civil service over here, and like in in a department that was like completely shielded from like market pressures and yes like all that same domination was still there like it was it's um getting rid of the value form didn't it didn't uh, solve that problem um yeah and i mean you can of course say that like the value form does condition at the most abstract level decision making in an important way and it does it's just like yeah but is that really sufficient to explain the sort of suffusion of these kinds of forms of domination in mm -hmm. every kind of organization <laughs> uh, or is maybe they're, they're a little bit more direct explanation for what's happening there. Yeah. I think in, uh, just cause I've been reading Eric Olin Wright's understanding class. And um, I think it's, I think it's a thing from the Weber tradition of sociology, the whole notion of like opportunity hoarding uh, comes in there. Um, and this, this would be that it's, uh, it, it also gives us like a kind of um, some explanatory, force or some kind of forced explanation for why is it that like supposedly socialist economies replicate the same fucking domination right like even even without the law of value operating and like so, somebody's going to at us with reams of fucking obscure shit about like analysis of the soviet union or whatever but you know this this kind of technical domination or this uh, opportunity hoarding um this dependency relation stuff this like kind of abstract parent child relationship between um levels of the society is still preserved and that's where kind of a lot of the domination is even if you're even if you're not doing market uh, commodity stuff right right we can kind of get into a debate about the value form etc cetera, etc cetera, but if you if you just ask 
any socialist or anarchist or communist of any kind, whatever, uh, you know, is the division of labor a significant obstacle to communism? I think pretty much everybody's going to go. Yeah, yeah, it is actually. <laughs> of course, right? Yeah. Like, like this is this is real. Like this is a really elementary point when you don't kind of get into that like big social theory kind of questions and just kind of look at it as like a really obvious question. Yeah, no, it, it's a big obstacle, and it, it is an obstacle across all forms of organization in society. Um, so, you know, this kind of leads us at, leaves us at an impasse, right? Um, it's, it's, it's very, uh, common to sort of say, well, okay, um, that's a problem. Uh, so like as a Leninist, uh, you know, I'm going to do the theorizing and the strategizing, but I'm going to be real concerned about the workers mm-hmm. or, um, I'm going to be virtuous while I'm, while I'm dominating them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, no, it is like, it is an appeal to personal virtue, right? That like your sense of camaraderie and humanity overrides the technical divisions and the, the contradictions in society. Um, and, you know, similarly as an anarchist, you might say, well, okay, yeah, social division of labor is a major problem. Uh, so we're going to create like totally flat organizations and root out any instance of that existing, um, with like, just kind of, we're just, you know, it's kind of like the, like, I don't, I don't see race sort of (laughs) approach, right? Like, it's like, you know, like if we just kind of think like, if we're just, we're just impartial enough and we care enough about people as people and not as roles then we're going to get past this which is another virtue idealism right it it is and it's it's kind of where this stuff falls flat because this is a very significant problem um like eliminating the division of labor is obviously a major impasse for marxism right because marx does identify the division of labor as like a fundamental structuring feature of class society um even if you know his focus is on the ownership of the means of production in 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 the the revolutionary equation um so there is sort of like a tradition of um marxism uh that is generally not that well known uh because it was suppressed in the soviet union uh but which um uh, Davenport sort of draws on here a lot, um, and this this uh, tradition was was focused on the creation of a unified world science that's necessary to overcome disciplinary intellectual barriers that prevent sharing and general intelligence. So, one of these people that uh, was really key to this was uh, Alexander uh, Bogdanov, um, and uh, you know uh, basically uh, this guy was one of the precursors to cybernetics and systems theory in his thinking. Um, And uh, he developed this idea of tectology uh, as a kind of like proto systems theory, you might say it was an attempt to kind of like overcome these two, the the limitations of these two competing ways of doing science, which was uh, dialectical materialism, which is kind of associated with the USSR on one hand 
positivism, which was kind of associated with like bourgeois science on the other. Um, uh, you know, this guy, pretty much his ideas were consonant with people like Otto Neurath. Um, and he was similarly like Neurath. He was really influenced by Ernst Mach, uh, who is somebody that Lenin criticized the hell out of um, in, in a very famous pamphlet. Um, so, you know, given that <laughs> Bogdanov's ideas and the sort of influences he had were opposed to Lenin, um, kind of didn't bode very well for his future <laughs> as, a, as an intellectual in the USSR. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, his ideas were attacked by both the Hegelians um, and sort of like more like diamat focused Bolsheviks. So when we we read um, read plenty uh, at the beginning of the book, when um, the sort of advocates of cybernetics are having an argument with like the old diamat people, and the diamat people are trying to use sort of like Marxist jargon to beat them over the head, and there's a sudden reversal of roles. It's kind of like you know a lingering example of this conflict, right? That that happened between these people who were in favor of kind of like systems approaches versus people who were in favor of more like doctrinaire was what, what uh, Davenport calls like Manichaean understandings, right? Like there's this, the Soviet way of doing things. And then there's the bourgeois way of doing things. And yeah, it's the good, the good way and the bad way. And it's all about just determining who's on the good side or who's on the bad side. Yeah. It's like a fucking miasma theory of science. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happened to Bogdanov? Did he get the old braca cacao or did he escape or whatever? You know? Uh, you know what? This article doesn't actually get into that. So let's. It seems like he would have got, he would have got gulagged. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Any yeah. I, I, I can't imagine it went well for him um died in 28 okay that just that sounds like it didn't go well for doesn't him. sound super great it sounds, uh, it sounds like around the right time frame for what i'm thinking of died in <laughs> moscow sounding even uh-huh. worse um uh so yeah he uh later years in death interesting um okay so he was not executed interesting um, deeply interesting he, what happened he was politically suppressed and uh it, it it seems he may or may not have committed suicide um but you know it didn't end well for him um and you know so this is uh yeah like he's a he's a, he's a figure that's pretty well known by people who know a lot about the history of the USSR uh but uh, or even people who are like really into systems theory. But beyond that, I think he's not that well known. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to kind of circle back to this. this subject. We'll have to look into it. Um, uh, earlier today, I found a PDF of English translations of probably just a bunch of essays of his. So I'll, I'll stick those in the show notes if I remember. Um, it'll, it'll be a while before we get around to this on the show, but it's something to keep an eye on, certainly. Yeah, and so, uh, uh, you know, da- Davenport says, like, well, if you look at the, the history of cybernetics, sort of, like, after Bogdanov, um, you can see that, like, there's people like von Neumann, who was, like, you know, very conservative, wanted to use nuclear weapons to annihilate the entire Soviet Union. Uh, 
obviously a brilliant scientist, but, you know, certainly not a, a man of the left. Um, and uh, then you have a lot of systems theorists <clears throat> or cyberneticians like Beer or whatever, you know, Wiener, uh, Gray Walter, like who are, who are quite friendly to the left to, to, to varying degrees. Um, and like to try to get away from the sort of like Manichaean perspective on like is systems theory bourgeois or not. Um, uh, Davenport sort of says like, well, you can kind of see this as being similar to the way that Hegelianism played out in the 19th to 20th century. Right. So Hegelianism also can kind of be seen as like a proto systems theory in a way, tried to, to create like a way of thinking about the world that transcended disciplines and, and created a sort of general structure for science. Um, and yeah, similarly, you have people like Marx who are influenced by Hegel on the left. Mm -hmm. uh, you, then you have like plenty of center Hegelians and right Hegelians. Uh, the right Hegelians especially are really interested in like the, the Prussian state is like the end of history. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, because you can see these, tendencies across the spectrum in like a kind of earlier example of this generalized approach, you could probably see the same thing in cybernetics, right? That like, it doesn't necessarily have one political affiliation, but it, but the direction you want to take it, whether it is towards um, sort of like refri refining in a kind of Taylorist way, techniques of management in the interest of suppressing the class struggle and reinforcing the privileges of managers and capital owners. Um, or if, you know, you want to take it in like the direction that like beer took it in terms of like, well, we want to have more democracy. We want to have more autonomy. We want to have uh, a functional uh, organization that gets beyond that stuff. Um, both of those things are possible within this framework. It's uh, it reminds me a lot of the stuff we covered with Feinberg, right. And transforming technology that like the, the techniques and technology, like the nuts and bolts of the technologies are ambivalent and it's the, the technical code that assembles them that gives it a political character. Um, and it means that you have to be kind of careful, right? Like when you're, di when you're disassembling the enemy's weapons and taking, taking parts out of them, you, had, you do have to be pretty careful and like think through what you're doing. But there's no way in hell that the spring or the lever is like poisoned forever like ontologically evil because it was associated with some some such thing that would just be a completely harebrained take which i'm sure someone has taken um in fact i'm certain of it yeah probably yeah. <laughs> you know like definitely like you know if if you know if, if lauza said like you know as soon as we came up with the wheel that was it like that was a step too far <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure there's some like primitive communists or you know primitivist who is like yeah the lever that was it, it all that was the beginning of the bourgeoisie <laughs> uh, uh, it was always already present in the lever right like the fucking yeah. the bourgeois like the capital domination was always there right from the start <laughs> yeah yeah perfect well that's it for this episode Catch us again next time for part two of our discussion of organizing for power. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook, we're on all the podcast apps, so like, rate, subscribe, all the usual stuff. 
You can also go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and throw us a couple of bucks a month to help support the show and to get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. You should go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, and Jumpsuit Utopia. They're wonderful shows and wonderful folks. As always, thanks for listening to the show, and we'll catch you again next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.